everybody, and welcome to episode four of uh, the Paperless Federalist. I'm Justin. I'm Gary. Uh, welcome back. Uh, we are picking up here again with um, discussion of Federalist Paper number four, uh, and as become quickly becoming a tradition on this particular podcast, uh, we like to start off with a little bit of a quick summary, you know, of of what this particular paper is about. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, we will. Uh, the goal of this podcast is to, you know, a somewhat lighthearted uh, approach. Uh, of looking at each one of the individual uh, or each federalist paper on an individual basis talking about uh, what it says um, talking about uh, maybe some of the things that are other just trivial things that are occurring in the nation uh, at the time uh, and discussing and, and maybe how that influences uh, the arguments in the particular paper uh, that we're discussing uh, and also we'd like to start off with like I said a little bit of an overview so uh, I'll throw it to Kerry uh, and let him uh, give a quick uh, summation of Federalist number four, uh, and then we can go from there. All right, thanks, Justin. Um, yeah, as we sort of uh, get hinted at in uh, our uh, conversation about Federalist number three um, in the last episode, the real challenge with these J papers is uh, really how similar they are, and it's really hard to distinguish how three through five, what's unique about each one of them, rather than to uh, you know talk about oh, yeah. what's this paper, what's this paper. Because they very much all seem to be variations on a common theme. So, much like number three, um, Jay's real focus here in four is to talk about how, for lack of a better term, the states are stronger together. Um, that uh, you know, having a net one national government more instead of you know each each state going on its own or three or four separate confederacies uh, is a better idea. For the people of the United States. Um, and going on that theme about saying that what's, what's more of a challenge with these papers is to distinguish what's uh, different about them. Is that the real focus of four seems to be in three. Jay was really focused more on foreign policy. On war. On conflict. On military confrontations with other powers. And how having a unified central government power would help protect Americans and... Uh, you know, the, the different states. In four, he seems to, he opens with that a little bit, but his real focus there is sort of starting to segue a little from military confrontations into when military and economic interests of a nation sort of fade from one end to the other. Because throughout four, that seems to be what he focuses on. In Federalist number three, Jay Roy talked a lot about how, you know, the United States uh, as a whole and as a series of, of states joined together could avoid humiliation uh, in military and armed conflicts with other countries. Um, in this paper, he seems to talk about, well, not only would we be able to avoid having to, you know, supplicate ourselves to foreign leaders uh, through our combined military power, but also that latent military power would also allow the United States to have more sway in asserting our economic power. And he then lays out the number of different ways in which American interests uh, sort of are at odds with the in economic interests of other countries. And what I really found interesting here is that Jay sort of takes it as a given, something that's not really as much assumed in modern economic theory in that it's a zero-sum game you know throughout the paper 
uh, Jay takes as a given that anytime one country gains economically, then another one has to lose. You know, there's winners and losers, and there's no net winner. There's not a situation where everyone works towards, you know, what economic theory that often lies out as comparative advantage, where everyone specializing in what they're best at makes it better for everyone. For him, it's very much a game of winners and losers. Uh, you know, if the United States tends to prosper in one area, everyone else tends to do better. And that's very much at odds with what modern economists consider to be sort of the conventional wisdom, where by every country specializing in what's best at, everybody wins overall. So he, he lays out a number of different sub-areas where, you know, America, because it's this new and unexploited territory, it's going to be better, you know, with the fisheries. It's going to be better at... Uh, Certain areas of trade that deal primarily with exploiting American resources. Uh, and the other countries are, of course, going to try to protect their own economic interests and, you know, uh, push back in America. And the only way that America can protect itself is by having the power to assert its own economic interests. And, and that, I think, is the main difference between his paper and the last one. Uh, because after that, he starts to fade back into some of his arguments from three where he just talks about how having you know the best men will be available at the, the federal level um the strongest military will be uh, brought up by it will be had by combining the resources of all of the states and you know it's sort of it's sort of a throwback to to uh federal's paper number three and i think for me the most interesting that's why for the most interesting aspect for me of Federal's paper number four was this, for lack of a better, mercantilist um, approach he takes to the economy and how, uh, you know, the he sort of acts like the uh, U.S. is going to be like uh, the United States. It's sort of like a uh, argument for forming the European Union back, you know, in the modern times of working together. We're going to trade, create this giant trade entity that's going to be very economically prosperous. So. Um, that's what I really got out of four is the economic argument. Okay. Uh, I think that's probably a pretty good summation of, of, of things. So let's just kind of go through top to bottom through, through this paper and, and highlight some of Jay's, uh, points he's trying to make. Sounds uh, good. And, and just kind of flush them out a little bit more. Um, you know, he starts off, uh, summarizing what he said in the last paper and then he jumps into this one and he talks about. Um, you know, hey, what I want to discuss here is how, you know, a strong federal government, or what Jay is saying is how, what he wants to discuss is how a strong unified federal government would, would help to, uh, to uh, make sure that we don't end up inviting hostility. Um, uh, um, through unjust causes. Through unjust causes of war. Maybe um, that's another distinguishing point. Just, is the, in Article 3, it was just causes, in Article 4, it's, it's unjust causes. Unjust or pretend causes. And, and he, he starts off by saying, hey, look, you know, uh, it's pretty obvious that there have been plenty of times where in, in the past where monarchs are, um, uh, use all kinds of reasons to go to war. It's not just the just causes of, of someone physically attacking the, you know, their particular territory or, or someone breaking a tree, which is what he talked about in, in, in Federalist number three here. He's talking about, you know, look, there's all kinds of other situations and he mentions, um, when they just want to get something out of the conflict, if they're just seeking just financial gain, um, it's just a power play, yeah. just a total power play. Uh, they're just or or just not even it's just military glory, revenge for personal affronts, ambition, 
uh, private compacts um, and, and just, you know, helping to uh, uh, promote their own lineage uh, for, of their family. Um, and I think that's something that's really hard for us to understand nowadays because, you know, you read historically how, you know, nowadays we're a, we're a society of nations and nation states where you're American, you have American interests, British, you have British interests, etc. Japanese have yeah. Japanese interests. Whereas back then, you know, in sort of the Renaissance Dark Age period, you know, before, you know, nation states really came to the fore as a standard, you'd have these kings who they had their family interests and they were sort yeah. of like a, a family corporation yeah. where they might own lands in Spain and in England and in Germany and a bunch of places where the people had nothing in common, but it was all part of their family holding corporation you know the, yeah. the plantagenets were a great example of that mm -hmm. from england where they had lands all over the place mm -hmm. um and often the family interests of the ruling family mm -hmm. would not necessarily be the interests of the british people okay uh and, and i think that's a, i think that's a good point um and you know jay but he he brings these up to specifically to say look here are all these other reasons where people end up countries end up in wars and he highlights the monarchs having these personal ambitions uh, or reasons to say, you know, that have nothing to do with with what he had outlined in Federalist Number Three as far as just causes of war, uh, breaking of trees or, mm -hmm. or physical mm -hmm. defense, uh, or having been attacked. Um, so, you know, and he, he points out that you know these and a variety of other motives which affect only the mind of the sovereign often lead them to engage in wars not sanctified by justice or the voice and the interests of the people. Yeah. Um, Can they get away with it rather than if it's right or not? Exactly. So then he gets into talk. Jay gets into talking then about um, France and Britain were our our rivals in in the fisheries. And this is where you mentioned as far as economics. And Jay starts bringing some of his economic arguments into this in this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think here he talks about look. You know, actually, America has got a better ability to supply some of the markets uh, than France or Britain, and we're going to prosper. And our prospering in those endeavors are going to result, as you mentioned, a zero-sum game in Jay's mind, in mm -hmm. Britain and France suffering. And, you know, when we're doing good, they're doing bad. Exactly. Um, you know, And that was really the default mode of thinking at that time. Mm -hmm. Here again, he, he, the argument is, and he mentions again with China, trade for China, um, you know, in, in kind of a similar aspect, just that we're we're going to be competing with these other nations, and we're better. It's better for us to try to compete as one unified people than to try to compete as thirteen individual colonies. Or he brings up his his straw man argument again: these three to four confederacies, which I think you had mentioned in the last episode. Uh, the, the you know anti-federalists aren't necessarily arguing for three or four. But the federalists love to pretend that yeah, they are. Yes, arguing for. they are. You know. Um, he brings it up again here. Any any more thoughts here about his his economic argument that you have? I just think it's dramatic uh, when you consider against what the modern conception is of how the international economic system works. You know, it, you mm -hmm. know, traditionally in you know, under the comparative advantage theory of uh, you know trade and mm -hmm. economics. You know, uh, you know I remember. Back in the very, at the very most basic for you know college students now in econ one hundred and one they talk about how look it's better for everybody if everybody who has a comparative advantage of something is you know if they spend more of their time and effort in that thing it helps everybody yeah. you know because like for example if someone you know has rubber trees yeah you know they're the best ones to make rubber 
you okay. know, if they have the, le- the place where they grow and, and, and whatnot. So what you're saying, this, this is this is the opposite of, of the Carnegie approach to steel manufacturing, right? Exactly. As, as opposed to owning the whole supply chain, you if you're very good at shipping, you handle shipping. If somebody else is very good at, at, at smelting, you, you know, handle that part of the aspect. Uh, if someone else is good at mining, they handle mining. Uh, and and uh, that's the more comparative advantage um, the theory of economics is, is predominant now, uh, as opposed to the top to bottom approach. Yeah, I mean, uh, in theory the now, economic, you know, it, when everyone's conducting international trade, the conventional wisdom is it's better for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's not something where one nation is going to gain and another nation is going to lose. Everybody's better off by cooperating. Whereas before that, the idea, I think what what Jay's article here is really shows something that's a part of the time in which he lived of the economy in some ways was viewed as, you know, to paraphrase Clausewitz, uh, the famous writer on war is war by another means, mm-hmm. you know, part of your strength as a nation was your armies and your navies, um, and what you could do in a war. Mm-hmm. But another part of your Navy, your art, your, another part of your country's strength mm-hmm. was your economic strength, how much you could extract wealth from another country to benefit your own. It's also part of your defense, right? If you're, exactly. if you're a very wealthy nation, people aren't necessarily going to go pick a fight with you. Exactly. Okay. That's, I think, to some extent, still true today. But at the same time, I don't think we take the isolationist economic approach that maybe they were taking at the time back then. Well, economic theory has changed since yes. then. Yeah. So, so Jay goes through that. Okay. So then next thing he touches on then. Well, I, I think, you know, I, what, I'm surprised we didn't touch yeah. on this in some ways in, in article um, in Federalist 3. In okay. that Jay here is really touching on what is a central aspect of sort of intellectual thought at the time, which was. What does it mean to conduct a just versus an unjust war? You know, that's not something that's talked about in those terms as much now, but just war is a very specific idea. It started with uh, St. Augustine, you know, it was developed further by Thomas Aquinas. Basically, it's this idea that there's not necessarily an absolute divine prohibition against a war. You know, some people might, you know, opponents of that theory might say that, yeah, you should never go to war at all. You should always be peaceful. But some religious thinkers explore the idea that there is such a thing as just war. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's the right thing to do to go to war when. Um, and I think that uh, Thomas Aquinas had more clarity on this than uh, St. Augustine. He lays out a three-factor test. You know, one, he says that just war must be waged for a properly instituted authority, such as the state. So, you, you know, it can't just be, you know, pirates, for example, can never conduct a just war. Secondly, and I think this is the most important factor for a lot of the conversations we're having uh, with Jay and others, a war must occur for a good and just purpose and not just self-gain. And then finally, peace must come be a central motive of even in the midst of the violence. And so the main thing that Jay is trying to appeal to uh, in Americans who want to think of themselves as a peace-loving people at this time is that if we are going to war, it's going to be for a good reason and not just because we want to do a land grab. Now, it could be arguable in the scope of American history, whether or not we've always followed that. Uh, But for our listeners, that's that's what just war means. It's it's not just a throwaway term. It has a specific meaning for those those Renaissance thinkers of the time uh, who all sort of share this common ideal. And so he's trying to 
set America as on a higher pedestal, a higher plane than these hoarding corporation British royalty families who any time that they think they can get a benefit yeah. from going to war, they're going to do it. Where you think, hey, America's better than that. We're only going to wage just wars if we can, where it's the morally right thing to do. So I think it's important that we highlight what he's talking about throughout 3, 4, and 5 when he's talking about just war versus unjust war. America, in his mind, is only going to be waging just wars to do morally good things and try to have peace as soon as possible, whereas monarchs are going to be much more concerned with what am I going to get out of this? You know, he goes on then to talk about how, um, you know, one government can collect and avail itself of the talents and experience of the ablest men in whatever part of the union they may be found. Uh, and it can move on uniform principles of policy, can harmonize, assimilate, and protect civil parts and members, and extend the benefit of its foresight and precautions to each. Really, he's saying again here that we've got the larger, t- largest possible talent pool if we're all put in together, you know. Um, we've got the ability to, to draw the best and the brightest. Um, you've got the ability to move uh, the resources uh, across into the areas that, that, that need them. I don't know. I felt like Jay was starting to put me to sleep here with these points because <laughs> these it, are the exact same things he said in three. I know. I know. I mean, it is. It, you know, you're right. The, our superstars are going to be found at the national level instead of states. Yeah. And, of course, we're going to have the coolest army and the strongest navy if we could find our power. It's just, I feel like, you know, yeah. get some new material, Jay. Um, <laughs> you know, you're just rehashing yeah. your old point. Yeah. I mean, and I think the Anti-Federalist counterpoint to that would be like, well, duh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on yeah. the army point, of course, the army and the navy of the United States is going to be stronger than the army and navy of rhode island delaware or massachusetts yeah. and it's not my intent to continually run these states down the road and to throw uh and to be down on them but yeah. they're small i don't think they can argue with that <laughs> rhode island's never known for stable superiority <laughs> it's true so it's true. i've never i've never once thought of rhode island maybe i'm wrong uh, now i'm sure we're gonna hear counter <laughs> that at some point at but some point my, yeah i mean he's making that obvious point obviously yeah. Pooling resources is going to result in a greater overall strength than having separate resources. Is there any, like, I'm just going to throw this out there. Is there any thought that maybe Jay is trying to, I mean, these are published in the newspaper, right? They're meant to convince people to to want to be part of this union. Is is he kind of dumbing it down to try to talk to the average person who might read the newspaper? Well, of course he's getting his to some point. But again, I feel like he's missing the mark because... He comes really, really close to making some good arguments, but then he gets distracted and goes back to... The softballs. It's like he spends too much time in four, in my mind. He's like one of those like sitcoms or, or other episodic thing that spends ten minutes at the beginning reminding you what happened in the last episode. Okay. <laughs> instead of advancing the plot. Yeah. He spends way too much time... To, if you didn't tune in to episode three of the Federalist Papers, yeah, here's what happened. happened. Yeah. This economic argument, I think, would probably be a better sell yeah. to a lot of the, the people in the states than the security argument. Because I, th- my sense is that he didn't need to sell the security argument too strongly because no. uh, the American sense at the time is they are separated by this giant ocean. Yeah. From all these other countries, and they've just won a war. 
Well, I mean, granted, Britain still has territory in the north, and Spain and France yeah. both have portions here. They in, do, in, in but that's the, on this continent. That's you know? the okay. real issue. That, but the real powers still lie on the other side of the ocean. But the but the yeah. real issue is not what happens in the case of war, because at the time that this conversation is taking place, they're not in a war. True. At the time, the biggest stressor for a lot of these these people who are living in these different countries is economic and not and not military because they've won their war mm -hmm. the united states is independent but despite that they feel they're still not able to really be part of international trade because britain and france both at the time are sort of blocking them out mm -hmm. between the fact that these more developed european countries have a more developed manufacturing process to maybe make better stuff at the time mm -hmm. and also the fact that they have these navies that can and just shipping know. in general exactly yeah and so i feel like the economic arguments would probably sell better to the americans uh citizens at the time than the military ones but he gets distracted and goes back to this military aspect you're right he does he does and he goes back and he talks again about britain and he says you know and he goes on and he hammers it home again and again about how hey you know, what if the English militia only obeyed the government of England, if the Scottish militia only obeyed the government of Scotland, if the Welsh militia only obeyed the government of Wales, uh, you know, when if there was an invasion, would they all work together, exactly. cooperative, you know, cooperate uh, uniformly, what would become of Great Britain as a whole? And, uh, you know, then, but finally then, he does finally start to talk about the fleets of Britain. But, he kind of does it in the same light as he just did militarily, mm -hmm. okay? And he talks about the fleets of Britain again, and he says, Great Britain's navy, or just shipping mercantile uh, efforts, would never have reached the height that they would have had they been done by four separate countries. And What's it, ironic yeah, is, you know, Britain, for most of its history, that it was becoming great, was essentially four separate countries. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't until the Act of Union was... I mean, for the most part, a lot of the components of Britain didn't particularly like each other. True. And true. were fighting wars against each other. <laughs> That's true. So, he's... I think he can find better examples than he does. Okay. But he attempts to attempts to use Britain as the main analogy and backbone in this paper. Because um, they were all from Britain. Not yeah. surprisingly. Wow, well, come on. We talked about in episode two about how they're not really all homogenous. Well, I think we differed on that. <laughs> I think we differed on that. You know, I mean, the reality at the time was... Most of the American citizens at the time were of British ancestry. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we've diverged since then. I'm yeah. saying that at the time, they shared this common heritage. It, yeah. Jay wasn't completely out to lunch with what he was saying. About I still say it was a bit of an oversell. Coming from a common intellectual heritage. I, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that it was a bit of an oversell. All right, all right. <laughs> right? We'll have to agree to disagree. Um, so he goes on and says, look, he uses his straw man again. Hey, what if you have four independent governments? What armies could they possibly raise and pay for? What kind of fleets would they ever hope to have? He does. He and does, and Francis will say, that's why we're not arguing. We're not right? arguing that again. Yeah. Um, but he goes through that in exacting detail here. He talks like, oh, if one's attacked, is the other person really going to come to his defense? Who's going to pay for the troops? Who's going to move the troops where? Who's going to have the ships? What if the two armies aren't, they're not trained the same way? How are they going to possibly work together in the defense of one of the of the states or of the some sub confederacies that are alleged to be argued for by the anti-federalists and and he, he he again he glancing blow to the history of greece uh about how that just wouldn't work out if we you know, followed a similar model 
for example, how, uh, you know, I'm not a scholar of Greek history by any means, but the various, you know, Greek, the, the, the nation, the, what, would, what would one day be known as a civilization in the, the nation of Greece, you know, that was a bunch of disconnected city-states that although they might have shared a similar culture and heritage to some extent, mm-hmm. often warred against each other, most famously the military state of Sparta mm-hmm. against the uh, democratic and often, you know, they might conceive themselves as a more refined state of Athens. Mm-hmm. And that weakened them in the state in the uh, when they had to face foreign adversaries because they can more easily be manipulated to, you know, uh, work against each other's interests. But, you know, in response to that, though, is I feel like, again, Jay is spending so much time on what's probably his weakest argument because at the out, at the outset of the Revolutionary War, not to, you know, 10 years prior or so, you have these 13 colonies that are indisputably separate colonies and don't really have anything binding them except for their common link, common status as colonies of Great Britain. And with no formal bound, with no formal binds, mm-hmm. with no formal linkages together, at the time, all these problems he's bringing up, mm-hmm. they managed to deal with. You know, yeah. they had General George Washington, who mm-hmm. was their commander, and everybody was fine with him. And they worked together to win this war with essentially nothing in resources. Mm-hmm. You know, they beat tremendous odds to win. They did. And they had no formal... French and Poland helped out a little bit. That's true, <laughs> and I don't mean to don't mean to uh, under to uh, cast aspersions on the foreign allies. But what I'm saying is, he's making this argument that without this strong formal framework, that America will essentially be helpless against mm-hmm. foreign aggression. Yes, you know, and will that, be that the the weak disorganized. Each other. Yes, the the, the but, fact that we're going to be weak and disorganized is going to invite. Uh, other countries to to do harm or to try to pick us off from each other or to play us against one another. But we won the war with the Articles of Confederation and a much a much looser linkage on paper. Yes. And so oh, it seems to me that he is yeah. really asking for, he's really trying to argue that against what... He's arguing against history in a way. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know? So the, so the common person might read this and say, well, look, you're, you you want to have, have us to have this more binding federal government, but we just, you know, with the help of some assistance, overthrew Great Britain, and we were nowhere near as linked together at that time as what you were proposing, Mr. Precisely. Jackson. He seems to be trying to hit the Articles of Confederation where they are strongest. Yeah. The strength of the Articles... Articles of Confederation was, is that, well, was that they gave all of the, essentially all of the foreign policy and military authority to the national authority. The weakness of the Articles of Confederation was the economic authority and the disputes between states. Yeah. It separated out. That's why, again, he seems to be on the right track there with, with for a while was talking about the economic concerns but then he gets right back to what i think he wants to talk about which is the foreign policy stuff yeah and again i think the economic stuff would have sold a lot better to the citizens of america at the time because they really felt like they were being closed out of the international trade system you know at the time with the original 13 colonies 
they were all relative, you know, they were either all on the ocean or relatively close to the ocean. They were mm-hmm. all, you know, it wasn't like there was a situation uh, where there was a coastal America and an inland America. There was that kind of political divide. Yeah. Yeah. All of America was coastal America. And they all wanted to be involved in international trade. And it seems that it would be a very easy argument to really focus on. Uh, hey, if we want to be able to economically prosper, we need to unite and assert our economic strength together. And he doesn't really seem to do that very. He goes that way, and then he like retreats from. I wonder why he does that, and I, I, I tend to think that maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, the Anti-Federalists, to a certain degree, I think, argue that they're better off economically. As this loose knit group, that's a good counterpoint. Yeah, I think you hit on something there because maybe they're arguing to different audiences, despite similar geographical location. It does seem like the the Federalist crowd is much more the international trade crowd. Yeah. They are the seagoing merchants. They are the craftspeople. They are the people who are making stuff that they want to not only sell it domestically, the market internationally, the anti-federalist crowd seems to much more be the farmers of the land, yeah. the people who are just, they're trying to grow a crop, and they are trying to sell it to their, you know, the local merchant or neighbors or whatnot, mm-hmm. and stay out of all international controversy. All they're interested in is, who's going to buy my onions? Yeah. You know, whereas the people in, and there's not any... To my knowledge, mm-hmm. there's no qualitative onion difference between <laughs> British onions and American onions at the time. That, well, of course we're not going to eat these garbage American onions. We're going to eat red coat onions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, they are what they are. Whereas if you're talking about China watches, never heard silver, of, a, of an American potato famine, have you? No, 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 no I have not. Obviously no. not. <laughs> So that's a good point. It could be arguing to different crowds. Yeah, you know, I think that's what the actual the, the farmers, uh, the you know, rural America, the farmers have a different set of interests uh, than urban America at the time. Yeah, and you know that might be a consistent theme from then to now, uh, where they're still even to this day different say, interests, rural versus urban. Yeah, that seems to be a divide that really has may as all we we think of it maybe in a context now of being this thing that has cropped up. More recently, uh, of oral, a rural versus urban, but I don't know that that, I mean, looking at it now, you know, that might have been a situation that has always has been. Elitist versus rural, you know, urban versus rural. Uh, and we'll see how that plays out. If there's more flesh to that argument uh, and counterpoint to each other as we go through these papers. Although probably at the time, the contrast wasn't as great because, you know, you didn't have, you know, there wasn't as much of a difference back then, of course, as there was now between rural versus urban you know i mean the urban was as urban the urban wasn't as large right. yeah cities certainly weren't as dense exactly yeah um and it wasn't as much also of a difference of land versus people mm-hmm. you know because one thing we've seen throughout the uh, timeline of america is in the past a much larger percentage of people were lived and worked on farms mm-hmm. whereas you know with automation over time it's become much more of a case of Less people, more automation, more land. Yeah. So bringing it back to Jay here, though, he he, he wraps up his uh, towards the end here by saying, uh, but whatever may be our situation, whether firmly united under one national government or split into a number of confederacies, certain it is 
that four nations will know and view it exactly as it is and they will act accordingly. And so then he goes on and he says, you know, essentially that they see a national government that is efficient, well administered, trading prudently, having a good militia that's organized and disciplined, properly using the resources and finances, finances discreetly managed uh, is uh, uh, under the uh, listing of um, virtues of one national government uh, <laughs> and our, our credit reestablished and our people free, contented and united. Again, I think perhaps Mr. J is uh, going on a sales pitch here. Um, versus the... Uh, that the federal is best. That the federal is best because of all these wonderful things versus... Uh, the, the federal government. The federal best. government, yeah. And, and and that how wonderful our nation would be under under one federal government, all the, all those things he listed. Versus, you know, they what what a, a discombobulated, you know, group of republics or confederacies which would result if we did not adopt the Constitution and go with a one centralized federal government. I think it's... Having the benefit of 200, 200 plus years of uh, history, look back versus Mr. J here. Uh, it's funny that in my eyes that he mentions how um, we have a completely free, contented, and unified people, and uh, and our finances would be discreetly managed and our credit uh, well established. Um, I wonder what he would say given uh, today's current events, but I'll leave those for another time. Um, well, you know, you know. <laughs> it's worth exploring because. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm going to argue against myself from the last episode. Because I remember last episode I was talking about how, uh, you know, from the perspective of 2017 and you know recent times generally, you know, is it is it a given that the people who govern on a federal level are the best and brightest that we have? And maybe it isn't. But uh, you know, that may not be necessarily a product just of na- of modern times, because. Although, at the time, yes, both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists considered that, uh, you know, had this, felt like federal government service, governmental service, public service was a high calling that, you know, would uh, influence the scope of history. From the very get-go, it wasn't like the era of good feelings, for lack of a better term, lasted too long. I mean, mm-hmm. George Washington espoused not having political parties. Yeah. And spoke heavily against it, but it didn't take long for political parties to develop. And when nope. they did, yeah. it didn't take long for whoever wasn't in power very much often had the opinion of whoever, of whatever the power in power was doing was the worst and most horrible, horrible thing, thing. Yeah. that anyone could ever do. So yeah. that may, parts of that might not be unique to our times no. as far as no. there's present throughout history of even the glorious founding fathers felt like those who disagreed with them were not only wrong, but possibly destroying the entire country. <laughs> well, mean, if you feel Garrison that, and, listen, and Hamilton, for example, if you feel that now, uh, teaser, uh, wait till uh, Federalist number six when uh, Mr. Hamilton comes back, and uh, I will wait with bated breath for the that. Uh, the arrows that he throws. Um, and, and, he's, and he's not shy about those sort of things. <laughs> he certainly is not. But because uh, I, I will tell you that he is a he he, he does not mince words, uh, and his passion is felt uh, even today. If you sit, he's not known for it. being a wilting flower. Generally, he no. uh, generally says what he feels. Um, <laughs> so I think in some ways argues Jay's points better than Jay did himself. And you've you've previously called uh, Jay as uh, Jay squared. Uh, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
throw out there that maybe we, he should be J cubed uh, because once he eventually becomes a Is justice, initial J also? justice John J Chief Justice John. That's right. So that's right. Heard, yeah, yes, that's true. Uh, J cubed. So uh. well, this is like uh, before he became J cubed. He's still J squared. Well, you're right. At this point, he's J squared. He levels up at a certain point and he becomes J cubed. J cubed. Okay. In this time when we're talking about, it, he's still J squared. All right. Oh, he suffered the damage of being hit by a brick in the head. Oh yes, yeah. yeah, we did. We He's not quite that, advanced yeah. into uh, higher levels of uh, awareness and uh, abilities, so he's still J squared. He is J squared. You're right. Although he would not at this point have suffered the the, the trauma of the doctor's right, like we mentioned in last yes uh, last episode. I don't know. That's still an ongoing. In case you're uh, tuning back in or first time, we're we're still looking into what happened between November '77 when these were written and uh, when Jay's last effort. In, in March of 1778, uh, and what happened uh, in that interim, uh, and where he went. Yeah, uh, so, uh, yeah. we will continue to update so you on when, his late-breaking developments. <laughs> late-breaking developments 200-plus years later. <laughs> I did want to explore a little bit more of the economic issues. Yeah, because right, again, right. I think this is the yeah. chief thing that differentiates Federalist Four from the others in the series. Um, provide a little bit more context. Go ahead. Because... As, as some people know from the Revolutionary War, of course, the country of France was our ally mm-hmm. uh, during the Revolutionary War. France primarily did it as a means of trying to get more relative power to Britain. Because they felt like uh, by weakening Britain, by allowing its colony of the United States to be carved away, they would be in that gainer in the game of European, European power politics. But again, their the belief of a zero sum game. Of exactly, okay. zero sum game. That's a that's a yeah. that's a consistent thought throughout that time period of nobody can gain without someone else losing. But relevant to the economic issues brought to fore here, you know, they were this great ally of ours during the Revolutionary War, and we, I think that during the war, of course, during we had this spirit of comradeship and you know fighting for a common cause. Everyone, mm-hmm. a lot of people who were you know a lot of Americans felt like oh. France is going to be our forever, our ally forever, but as soon as the war ended, France, throughout its wars with Britain, had tremendous issue with debt management and uh, the debts it incurred in order to fight Britain. And ironically, you, uh, a big part of the what brought on the Revolutionary War was Britain trying to pass taxes to offset the cost of French and Indian, Indian wars, where it felt like it expended resources on to benefit Americans. Uh, to fight, you know, to gain uh, security for Americans in this colony, so wanted to offset them with taxes from America. Ironically, after the Revolutionary War, not long after uh, the America, America, the country of the United States, good feelings between France and the United States soured very quickly, because uh, the French wanted to offset some of their losses and debts they'd incurred in fighting the British by wanting the Americans to immediately repay loans that mm-hmm. they had forwarded them to fight. And, you know, similar you know, topics like the Americans, you know, not uh, competing with France uh, aggressively in certain markets, etc., uh, which would be culminated in what became known as the XYZ affair. You know, and at very, at, uh, very, at not long after the Revolutionary War, uh, America and France almost came to a point of war themselves over their divergent interests regarding trade, you know, repayment of debts and loans to France. So, you know, that does tend to, again, explain the zero-sum game view of the time of, you know, ultimately, there's winners and there's losers. 
Well, see, again, though, with the U.S. Constitution, if it would be ratified, the federal government would have better ability to increase in lobby taxes because mm-hmm. it basically had virtually no power to that before. So then, assuming they could tax the 13 states more, which, I mean, they would be able to, they could then go on to potentially repay some of these debts a little bit. A little, yes. a little bit. But back. again, that's all derivative of international trade again because mm-hmm. at the time, you know, there, the primary form of taxation that funded the federal government Mm-hmm. Was uh, tariffs, import, export duties. You know there there was very few W twos issued at the time. Uh, and, <laughs> that's true. And that's true. Th- there wasn't any so, national income tax. So uh, um, so it was all from foreign trade. So again, it all comes back to foreign trade, and that's what again why I'm surprised that Jay doesn't hammer have more heavily on it instead of going back to this national security argument. Yeah, I mean, it looks like starting in 1790, we started making regular payments to France mm-hmm. on the debts that we'd incurred with them, uh, which I'm sure they were happy to actually receive some money coming in. <laughs> but primarily, and again, I'm not trying to add spouse and anti-France for yeah. a British view here, oh, no, but no. a lot of the conventional wisdom I've, I've seen throughout history is that, from, from my historical readings, is that Britain had a much better overall financial system already in place of... You know, a banking system, yeah. a debt system, a taxation system, where they better accounted for what they incurred and planned to repay, mm-hmm. whereas France at the time seemed to be much more willing to just put everything on the national credit card <laughs> and worry about the problem later. And so, uh, you know. when it was a problem with France, it was a much more severe problem because they hadn't really planned as much for it. It wasn't yeah. just a annoying problem; it was a catastrophic problem. And of course. You know, we got to remember, not that long after the U.S. Constitution in, in, you know, in historical time, not long that long after the the Constitution passed in the yes. 1780s, was the French Revolution in the late 1790s, yes. where all of their credit card debts came due, yeah. and they didn't have the money to pay, and yeah. you know the whole system went down. Yeah. So, you know, there, the, I think a lesson that could be drawn from from Federalist Four going beyond just what Jay writes is how much national economic and and national security issues Mm -hmm. can sometimes be intertwined. I know that uh, I found very entertaining his citation to the fisheries because, uh, you know, that's one real advantage America had is that uh, he had great cod fisheries. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a great book I've read by uh, an author named Mark Kurlansky. Okay. On top of cod, and uh, I was unaware before then how much of American prosperity came from the common codfish. What? Uh, a lot? I mean, what? Apparently, the, <laughs> I think the first. Uh, I mean, don't don't just throw that out there. The and first not follow the, it up. The first flag of Massachusetts was, had a codfish on it, and huh. uh, a lot of their wealth came from like much more prosperous and non-depleted uh, cod uh, fisheries. Hmm. Uh, you know, which was a staple fish at the time and the ability to store it and uh, preserve it, ship it to England, you know, and when their fisheries have been much more depleted. And uh, I believe the first governor of Massachusetts was, uh, in fact, a codfish. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> he was named uh, Mr. Coddington, I believe. Mr. Coddington, okay. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, any any other substantive points about uh, Federalist Number 4 or that you can think of that we haven't talked about. I mean, we, we've gone over it, I think, about as good as we can. And, uh, you know, to be fair, there's not a lot of, of, of differentiation. differentiation here between three and five. 
Um, I think the main you know, differentiation from four to three is that four is much more focused at inviting war. It, it starts yeah. to make an economic argument. I feel like it doesn't close the deal. Yeah. Um, it's food for thought. I'm looking forward to five because five sort of changes gears a little bit and starts to argue by historical analogy. And I think we're going to find enough in five to fill up a, a good whole episode. Okay. Talking about uh, how we feel about Scotland and England. This episode was great. What are you talking about? <laughs> but uh, this talks about the economic. Yeah. Uh, I feel like they probably could have spent more time on it. He yeah. sort of he starts to go down a road that looks like a good road to go down, and then he yeah. decides to turn down, turn around, and go back to the road he's already driven on. on. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, poor uh, John Jay, uh, constantly being berated by us on this podcast. Um, you know, at some point, for absenteeism should, or lack of focus. What we should do. What we should do is when yeah. we've got plenty. When we get th- when we get through with five. Yeah. We've got plenty of time until until number 65. Yeah. We need to find someone at that final John Jay uh, paper who just is just loves John Jay. Yeah, number 64. And bring yeah. him in and have them tell us why John Jay is such a great guy. And yeah. We're just a bunch of idiots. You know, you don't really respect him. Yeah. I, uh, when he should, when he's when he's definitely Emily worthy of respect. Oh well, I don't doubt that he's worthy of respect. He's not really okay. closing here. He's not. He's not selling it. If I was a, if I was a person in the uh, thirteen states at the time, I don't know that John Jay would be would be driving home for me. Well, oh, I, I know. Yeah. I, I can imagine a scene in which John Jay is sitting at his desk, <laughs> drinking his coffee or tea. Yes. And Alexander Hamilton storms in the room and says, "You put that damn tea and the coffee down." <laughs> That's for closers. You, sir, are not a closer. So we will we will go forward here in net number five very soon. Yeah. Uh, we'll hope to close. We will hope to close where John J. maybe doesn't. Doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or similar to that, I can imagine you and I sitting around in 1777 uh, or 1787, uh, having read the, the New York uh, most recent Federalist paper. Uh, and I was having a similar conversation. I'd be too time. busy fishing for cod. Fishing for cod, advancing okay. American interests, or your own pro- or own economic prosperity. We're just exactly. plucking them out of the water left and right. Not cod, all of cod, us have cod, time cod, to be John Jay just sitting around, just espousing, uh, writing the same idea over and over, over and over, over again, getting hit in the head <laughs> with bricks, <laughs> using an excuse to sit around doing nothing. Oh Advance gosh. Your own political interests. <laughs> I've never said that the getting hit in the head with a brick when he was taking it easy after his. <laughs> <laughs> luxury (laughs) alright anyways on that note um, I don't know how much more mud we can throw at John Jay (laughs) Um, I think we should continue any other mud we have for episode episode 5 so join us then uh, episode 5 discussing Federalist number 5 where we'll see what other mud we can throw at John Jay and and examine the um, remaining portions of his argument concerning the dangers from foreign force and influence. In the meantime, I'm going to try to find an image to make sure we link the podcast of uh, that first mayor of uh, Massachusetts who was, in fact, a codfish. Okay. I don't want to be sounding uncredible about that. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> we'll see you in episode five. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> if you like what you heard, please make sure to follow, like, and subscribe to the podcast. And we really appreciate any ratings or reviews we get on iTunes. If you go to our website at paperlessfederalist.podbean.com, there's a link that will take you to the podcast on the iTunes where you can click the Rate and Review tab. Thanks again for listening.